those of you who have your Bibles and those of you getting, getting one, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6. So if you could turn to Ephesians 6, we're going to look at verse 14, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, and we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We sit for the word of the teacher. One we honor, the other we tolerate. My voice is hoarse because it's football season. Ephesians 6. We're taking a look at the armor of God. We took a look at uh, uh, gird your waist with truth. Having put on, and today we're going to see the breastplate of righteousness, but I'll pick up at verse 13. Paul, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And now I want you to turn to Luke 18, please. Luke 18. Everyone say breastplate of righteousness. Thank you. Let that resonate with you, breastplate of righteousness. Luke chapter 18, Matthew, Mark, Luke in the New Testament. We're going to pick up at verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Boo. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then I want to read one more passage to you. You don't have to turn there. It's out of Ezekiel 33, verse 13. You can note it later. It says, when I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, but he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity, none of his righteous works shall be remembered. But because of the iniquity that he has committed, he shall die. So there's some confusion here. Breastplate of righteousness, and then we see that we have no righteousness of ourselves, but we're to put on a breastplate of righteousness. It's a bit confusing, but we'll make sense of it because God will lead us into all truth as he promises by his Holy Spirit. So let's pray and ask for that. Lord, we do ask that you'd lead us into all truth. We know that 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so, Lord, today, as we take a look at this breastplate of righteousness, I pray that every person present within the sound of my voice, would take great joy in realizing what it is you've established. That this is what is so significant about the body of Christ and Christianity, that it separates Christianity from every religious system in the world. It's an amazing gift. It is not our own righteousness. It's your righteousness put on our account, imputed to us. And Lord, the security that comes with that and the assurance of that is a great blessing. I know there's folks in this room right now that just feel so condemned, so overwhelmed. They just feel like they failed at every step of the way. There are others in the room that believe themselves to be superior. They think that because they pray and they read that somehow they're better. And Lord, I say that because I know how it feels. I've been in their shoes. 
And it's not just in the past. That ugliness of self-righteousness creeps in at every vestige. But God, by your grace and by your mercy, would you settle our hearts today? Let us realize this gift we have of this armament that protects the most vital organ, our heart, but be secure in Jesus Christ. So Lord, bless now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. When we're going through this study of the armament of God and the armor of God, and we looked at at, uh, the belt of truth last week, and we come to this place in the passage where the Apostle Paul, again, being chained to a Roman soldier and taking a look at all of his armament and being amazed by it and seeing the similarity in the Christian walk to the armament of a Roman centurion that he's chained to and he's making application to it and illustration to it and, and he's going by each piece of the armor and he began with the belt of truth which is the center of everything that a Christian is, that if we don't have the truth, we stand upon nothing. It's the foundation of everything we believe. And so we have to uh, be able to discern the truth. We have to be able to understand the truth. We know that God's word is true. And we studied that in the previous passage. And, and now we come today to the second portion of, of verse 14, which is not just the belt of truth, but now it's the breastplate of righteousness. And this breastplate of righteousness uh, as a Roman breastplate, typically made of bronze, and it's this, this stunning feature. It usually had ornamentation on it, but it was, it was an amazing piece of armory uh, that, that excelled the Roman legions <clears throat> and far beyond any other culture to that day or any, any other nation to that day. And it was, it was uh, bronze on the front but leather in the back, and it was designed to protect a vital area. And I'll tell you, if a blow came through the bronze... It was, it, was, uh, it was usually fatal because it, it protected the most vital organs, specifically the heart. And, and I would just simply begin our message today to ask you, what is the area of your life that is most vulnerable? Think about it. What is it that derails you in your Christian walk? What is it that right now plagues you? What is the guilt that is just heavy upon you? <clears throat> What is that that just causes you depression? What is that, that vital area of your life that as it's struck, it just brings you to your knees and takes out every vestige of your life and it causes you to, to collapse in failure? What is it? For each of us, it's different. For each of us, it, it's... Some may, for you, it may be your family, it may be your marriage, it may be your work, it... It may be the condemnation and the guilt of secret sin. It may be a number of things for you. But the idea of this breastplate of righteousness and designed by the Romans in this illustration is to protect the vital organs, to protect that which if, if, if a dart, a fiery dart of the evil one were to pierce it, you would die. And so this breastplate of righteousness was the area that protected the most vital area of the human body. And so... When we think about this, we think, what is this righteousness we speak of? What is this search? What is this insight that we, we want to glean from looking at the most critical area, which is the heart of a man? You know, they always say at the heart of every issue is an issue of the heart. And so when we look at this, Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs all the issues of life. 
And, and when we speak of the heart, it's not like the emotions are contained in that organ in the heart. It's this idea of, of the internal aspect of the soul. But, but we say this organ, we say heart, and, and many of you understand that, that usually when we go through emotions, our heart races. And so we always attribute it to that organ. It's the one that pumps the blood and causes us to, uh, to go fall you know, flush or faint or whatever that is. That organ is affected by the emotions of those things that, that move us. And so when, when we speak of the heart, it's not necessarily the organ as, as much as it is the conscience or the soul. It's this idea that, that the, the Lord wants us to realize that, that we're to keep this soul, this, this heart with all diligence because it springs from it every issue of life. Every issue of life. Hey, your heart's broken, we speak in, in the English language. And that just means that emotionally we've been undone, that something has devastated us, something has crushed us. And, and I, I look at that. There's another aspect to righteousness that we look at, and one of it is, in a sense, national righteousness. Uh, national righteousness. We, we watch as a nation is judged by its lack of righteousness. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. It was Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, the, the French historian, who was the first one to coin what an American was. And, and in his treatise on America, he said, America is, is great... Because America is good. When America ceases to be good, it will cease to be great. And his whole point was simply the fact that it was righteousness. He said, I look for America's greatness in her seaports, in her areas of commerce, in her school systems. But it wasn't until I saw her pulpits aflame with righteousness that I saw what made America great. And then he goes on to say, America is great because America is good. And when it ceases to be good, it will cease to be great. Righteousness is this idea of, of doing what's right. A conscience to honor your commitments to follow through on, on your word, to be truthful. This is this idea of rightness before God, to honor that covenant of marriage, to honor your, your commitments financially, to honor your word when you say you'll do something, you will. To not lie, to not cheat, to not steal. This is this idea of being right. And, and with national righteousness, personal sins can cause a nation to fall. We saw that with David and we saw it with Joshua, the tragic defeat of Ai, where there was personal sin in the camp. We, we know that it was the sin of Achan in one regard. That personal sin destroyed uh, the efforts of an entire nation. And we watch what occurs. It was General Stormman Norman Schwarzkopf when asked, what is wrong with America? And he says, it's a lack of integrity in America today. We've lost it. We, we, we just don't care anymore to do the right thing. As long as it's good enough for us and we can get what we want out of life and, and we can just make it through our you know, three score and ten and call it quits, forget everyone else. He who dies with the most toys wins. Look out for number one. No one else is. And, and this is a destruction of a nation's righteousness. And it's this increase in the evidence of corruption. It was, it was Winston Churchill who said, in Europe, all politics revolved around the idea of, of, of an attempt to obtain power. In the United States, it was an attempt to obtain truth. And he says, back when he gave his speech after he had been the prime minister and he was getting ready to call it quits when he would die only a few short years later and he had toured America and he said in one campus uh, speech, he said, I fear that this is changing in America. It's no longer a, a fight for truth. It's now a push for power. And that's what it is. I'll say anything, do anything, and promise anything as long as I can obtain the power. 
and, and no longer do we work it out in, in the legislative branches of government or the executive branches of government. Now it's done in the judicial level through ju judicial fiat where there's no elected representation. There's no attempt to debate the truth. It's all done by uh, a man or a woman sitting on a bench who, who then you know, legislates from the bench and the, the judicial branch of government was never intended to do that. And so even if we have a conscience on abortion in America based on Roe v. Wade, and the Supreme Court justices, no longer do the states have the right to vote on that and vote our conscience. Even though as Christians we believe it to be wrong, that has been taken from us by a judicial mandate. It's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. And God won't sit idly by. It's a national sin. It, it removes our righteousness. We're not right before God. We're going to face that judgment. And as a result, it affects because they used to say back in 1973, the, the clarion call in 1973 for the pro-choice movement was, a world of wanted children would make a world of difference. I mean, that's a really powerful statement. A world of wanted children would make a world of difference. They had 157 child abuse cases annually. 157,000 child abuse cases annually, and they were, they were horrified by it. And they said, in a world of wanted children, it would make a world of difference. And so this idea of abortion was implemented by that clarion call. And today the number still stands, 157,000 abused or unwanted children who have been faced with abuse. But it's no longer in a year, it's a week. Because when children become a, a commodity of convenience, they no longer have the value. When we have the authority over their life or their death, it's, it's no wonder we find them uh, left in dumpsters. The value of a human life is lost. We're no longer right with God. And a nation's righteousness is, is depicted by that. When we no longer stand before God in the understanding of marriage and right before Him, He doesn't bless it. You can call it whatever you want. You can have the states declare it. You can do whatever you want. But before God, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't work. And so there's a nation's righteousness. There's also this idea that, that there's increased corruption in the government. I mean, we've been seeing it. It's awful. And I'm not even talking partisan. That's irrelevant to me. I'm to, everybody's affected by it. The minute you get into office, your whole goal is to remain there. And now you've got a checkbook to write, and you can, you can stay in by giving everybody a present. And after a while, we just run out of money, but we just keep, keep printing more. And so a nation's righteousness is affected. Debt is just as immoral as abortion. Some of you struggle with that, but it's true. The Bible says, have no debt but to love. $16 trillion of debt. I, 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 I'm, I'm baffled by that. Baffled. Baffled. And yet, it strikes me that we're going to keep it going. We'll keep printing it and spending it. We spend a billion dollars a day more than we take in in the United States of America. I wish I could do that in my home. A billion dollars a day more than we take in. Nobody's moved by that. I, I thought you would be. All right, so let's move on. I know you are. It's just, it's just a little overwhelming. It's a little discouraging. But God will have the final say. I know it's heavy at the beginning of the passage, but take heart. There's joy at the end. Stay with me. We talk about national righteousness, and we go through this picture of national righteousness, but there's another type of righteousness. It's personal righteousness. This idea that people have different concepts of what righteousness is. And we understand that righteousness is, is something that we are, not something we do. Righteousness within us affects what we do, but what we do does not make us righteous. Do you understand that? 
What we do doesn't make us righteous. Understand that. What we do doesn't make us righteous. I just read that in, in Ezekiel 33. You can do righteous things, but you, you sin once. And, and the scripture says that your, your righteous acts on your best day, on your best day, where all the pistons are firing and you are the sweetest person on the face of the earth and everybody's smiling at you and so thankful for your service to them, on your best day, the Lord says that your righteous acts are but filthy rags. Mine too. Mine are filthier than yours. And when he says the word filthy rags, the description in, in, the, in the Greek is the rags that they put on a leper. Yeah, you, yeah the, the pus and the dead skin and the, you know, the, you're ripping those things off and you're like, I'm so righteous, look at this. And everyone's like, that, that's you and me. That's you and me. Our righteousness is not dictated by what we do but by who we are. See, this is the beauty of it. Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.20. Your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Exceed. The word Pharisee means Separated. This, this idea that they were, they were separated unto God. They would, they would work out every yacht uh, and tittle of, of the law. They, they were mindful of everything. They followed, observed it to the best of their ability, and they laid it out there. And these, these men were, were highly equipped to follow every letter of the law. Every letter of the law. And I would just say to, to all of us this morning... Your observation of the law doesn't make you righteous. Doesn't make me righteous either. The old adage, my son is now learning to recite it, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang around with girls who do, or those who do. And, and you think, well, because I don't do that, and have you seen the size of the Bible I carry? And I pray fervently. I read every morning. I eat a specific diet outlined in the Scriptures Good for you. Put your nose down. You're blocking the sun. Doesn't make you more righteous. We have this ability to, to, to walk in a self-righteousness. And it was interesting because Jesus never, in, in, his, in his walk on the earth, he never came down on sinners. He came down on the self-righteous. I read Matthew 23. It is, it is a series of woes. Woe unto you. I don't know about you, and I don't want to hear God tell me that. And it's one after the other, and he's laying it out, and you know what he's dumping on? Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. In the passage of Scripture that he's quoting in, in uh, <clears throat> Matthew 23, he says, you're like whitewashed sepulchers. You appear beautiful on the outside, but within, you're full of dead men's bones, of all uncleanness. You appear outwardly righteous unto men, but inside, you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. I mean, it's like being in a restaurant, and you're drinking your glass of water, and you look down, and you see a spot. I mean, it looks like this, this glob of mucus at the bottom of your drink. And you're just praying, and you reach to the bottom to rub it off, 
and there's nothing there. You're like, oh, it's in the cup. Yeah, it's disgusting. It's in the cup. And these whitewashed sepulchers were tombs, and they would wash them white, and they looked beautiful. And you can dress up, and you can wear nice things, and you can carry a big Bible, and you can walk with a gait and speak and pray in old you know, King James English. That doesn't make you righteous. Then those aren't bad things to walk in accordance with the Lord. It's not a bad thing to, to avoid, you know, sins that easily beset. It's not bad. That's what God wants. He wants us to walk in righteousness, but your, 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 your works do not dictate your righteousness. They don't dictate your righteousness. If they did, we'd be like every religion on the earth. It would be a religious system. When, when, when the, the two guys come to my door in the suits and the name tags and the black tie and they're, you know, nicely groomed, very polite, they come to the door and their name says elder, though I'm older than they are. I invite them in. We talk. And I tell them, I say, why would I want to embrace your religious system? Why would I want to embrace your religious, religious system of Mormonism? It was, it was Rudyard Kipling who called Mormonism American Islam. It wasn't too far off. Although much nicer and kinder and not, you know, jihad and the like. But his point was this. And this is a similarity. There's much difference, but this is a similarity. Their righteousness is dictated by a religious system of works. It is by grace that you have been saved. It is a gift of God, not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. You didn't earn your righteousness. It was given to you. It was given to me. When the elders come to my door, the Mormon elders come to my door and they lay out, I stop them and I say, if we were to die right now, do you know that you'd be in heaven? And they start with their three heavens, the celestial, the terrestrial, the celestial. I say, okay, pick the highest one, the one that you're wanting to obtain. Okay, if you were to die right now, do you know that you would be there? Well, that uh, it depends on if I've kept the doctrine of the covenants and the pearl of great price and da 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 da. I said, no, no. Do you know? Well, as, as best as I can, having observed the things that I'm supposed to do. So you don't know. Well, that's up to the Lord. What about the second level of heaven? Will you make that? Uh, I, that's dependent upon what God decides. So it's all based on what you're doing. Is that why you're going door to door? Jehovah's Witnesses. They've got to send the time card back to Brooklyn, New York. They've got to to earn that. They've got to get all the things checked off. You've got to do this. And then you rise in the system. And with these religious systems, this is where it all breaks down. Because we are trying to obtain our righteousness by, by what we do. You can't. You can't. I look at him and I say, look, I, I tell the Mormons, I said, I got a Dyson vacuum cleaner. You're coming to my house with, with a lame vacuum cleaner that costs more and it doesn't do as well as mine does. I, I have to tell you something, guys. If I died right now, I'm in heaven, absent from the body, present with the Lord. My righteousness, my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Why would I give up that which I can never lose? To follow your system that is not even assured. And I got news for you. Maybe I'll end up in the third heaven with Hitler. 
in your system. And I can't come visit you in the second and third heaven, but you can come visit me, and I'm sure you will because you're such a wonderful person. But that's not a bad deal. I can murder and kill and, and create a holocaust of six million Jews and still make it in the third heaven. Good deal. But if you're wrong, one sin will keep you out of heaven for all eternity. Your self-righteousness will not save you. You'll stand before a holy God and give an accounting of your life. How many times a day does a good man sin? Think about it. Five? Eight? Twelve? 365 days in a year? You live three score and ten, 70 years times that? You're going to stand before God with thousands of sins and say, let me in to heaven? It's not going to work. And everybody in this room knows that no matter how nicely you dress and how polite you act, in your heart, where the breastplate of righteousness is to cover, it is wicked. I can just tell those fellas, and I do this often, do you want to see a videotape of what you think in secret? How your mind operates? There's nobody in the room who'd want that. They wouldn't want it. Their righteousness is filthy rags. It's a system that doesn't save. What you do doesn't make you righteous. What you do doesn't make you righteousness. Religious righteousness can save no one. Let me say that again. Religious righteousness can save no one. As a matter of fact, the self-righteousness of religion will defile you. Jesus is more content with a sinner than he is with a self-righteous person. He even said in Luke 18, two men went up to a temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Listen to the Pharisee. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus, God, I, I, thank you, that I am not like one of these. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Look at my tax returns. Give tithes of all that I possess. I possess, I possess, I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Well, you don't have a snowball's chance in hell, pal. (laughs) I fast, I tithe. And you're calling yourself a sinner. Well, that's the one thing you got right today. And so when he lays this out, he says, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know what's precious about the Lord? King David understood this. This is a man after God's own heart. He understood this about the Lord. He understood God is merciful. When we're honest with God, he's merciful with us. It's not this thing where we're trying to cajole you to say, okay, all right, all right, all right, all right, I'm a sinner. 
That's not what I'm trying to get at. I'm trying to get you away from thinking that your religious system or whatever it is that you've measured thinking that you're going to be able to stand before God is going to get you in. It isn't. Of course we're sinners. We're all sinners. Sinners just means missing the mark. It means we're not perfect. We've been born into the heredity of sin. Jesus Christ has given us a way out. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In Him. In Him. You see, when this man cried out and he says, Be merciful to me, O God, a sinner. The Lord then spoke. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You're not going to win shaking your fist at God. You're unfair. You have no idea. You haven't given him the time of day. He's been keeping your heart beating and keeping your feet planted on on the ground through the gravity he created while you're spinning through the universe at hundreds of thousands of miles an hour. Your lungs are moving while you sleep. Your heart is beating while you sleep. And, and he, he causes the rain to fall softly upon your field and the produce to end up on your table. He loves you with an everlasting love and he gives you good and perfect gifts and he's, a, he's just lavishing you with all of these things. And yet you would say, you owe me answers. No, no, he doesn't. He's a good God, he's just. You don't understand him, neither do I. But he's merciful. You want to get in a war with him, you're not going to win. You want to stand before him and tell him you're better than he is? You're not going to win. You think you can run the universe better than he can? You can't even run your own life. Ask the people around you. You're tough to live with, right? Philippians 3.9 says that we would be found in him not having our own righteousness, which is from the law or observation of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from faith but it's by God. It's from God by faith. We, we can't earn it by what we do. We earn it, but we receive it by who He is, and we receive it by faith. We just say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Please, Lord, help me. I'm a sinner. The Lord does that. The interesting thing about Luke 18, when we see the contrast between the Pharisee and the sinner is that the flesh can never be trusted to walk in the love of God. The flesh can never be trusted to walk in the love of God. He who stands, let him take heed lest he fall. The minute we're left to our own accord apart from God, we, we tumble, we crash. But I have to say this. One of the greatest struggles in the Christian walk is our assurance of this righteousness. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, listen to these and let them, let them settle in your heart. Especially if you've never come into a relationship with God, listen to this today. It's for you, it's a gift from God, listen to it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confess, confession is made unto salvation. So when you receive the Lord, his righteousness is put on your account and you're saved. You're saved. And the beauty of it is, is is as Christians, you come into a world that wants to remind you of what a loser you are. 
You come into a world where you have guilt and shame. And why do you think that antidepressants are being prescribed at record numbers? Why do you think that these things are out of control like they are today? And, and, and I would just say, even in the Christian realm, we struggle when we feel this lack of assurance. We struggle with who we are. We feel unworthy to God. I, that is one thing that I struggled with for years, that even as a Christian, I struggle that, you know, Lord, I've let you down yet again. What a pathetic loser I am. Lord, you don't want anything to do with me. I've heard that voice so many times, it's nauseating. I feel like I'm a failure in my Christian life. The things that I say to God, I swear I'll never do it again, I do. Those things that I say, God, I really want to do this, I don't. I'm not alone. The Apostle Paul said those exact words. And I would just think of this idea that we feel as failures in our Christian life. We're certain that God is ready to reject us at any moment. He's finished with us. We think that he's no longer interested in us. He no longer loves us. Why would he want to spend any time? You know what? I I don't need you to remind me of my failures. I live with them every day. I don't need to remind you of yours. We are brutal. We have one of two choices. We can take an honest assessment of our life or we can lie to ourselves. But either way, we're living in misery. There's a constant sense of guilt, yes? It's the condition of the human race. We feel like God is just ready to blame us. I want you to know something. Everything I just listed and took time to share with you just now, listen to me. That is an attack from the pit of hell itself. That's Satan, the accuser of the brethren. He wants you paralyzed. He wants you riddled with guilt. He wants you taken out of the game. It is a satanic attack of the highest order. How do you avoid that? Armor. The breastplate of righteousness. Remember this. As Christians, unlike any religion in the world, as Christians, we do not stand on our own merits. We do not stand on our own merits. We do not stand on our own merits. We never did. Stop trying to be a Christian. There's only room in your life for one, and that's Jesus. The only thing we bring to the equation is we die, crucify and rely upon the Lord. We surrender, we yield. There is nothing of merit in our own life. Anything we attempt to do is filthy rags apart from the Lord. We don't do it to obtain His favor. We have it. We don't do it in, we, we, don't, we don't obey so that we can obtain salvation. We're saved. That's why we obey. It's not out of obligation we obey. It's out of adoration. It's a whole different relationship. It's love. You did this for me. You put your righteousness on my account. Every drop of blood in your body was poured out on Calvary. The extent of humanity's sin, all of your righteousness was poured out. All of our sin was poured into you and then you imputed it to us. No wonder the Father couldn't keep you in the grave. How great a sacrifice. What a wonderful Savior. The grave couldn't hold you. You were without sin. 
You said on the cross it is finished. And the beauty of it is that when we come to the Lord by faith, as we see in Romans 10, and we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we're saved. Because with our heart we believe unto righteousness. And with our mouth we confess and we're saved. It means that we come to the ground at the cross and I don't care, I don't care who you are or what you've done. Whether the world merits it or the world despises it, the ground at this cross is level. And we're all wretches and we bring it to the cross and when we get there, His righteousness is put on our account. Nothing we did. Our righteousness is not accomplished by what we do. It's given to us as a gift and we receive it by faith. Have mercy on me, a sinner, O God. That's our only hope. That's what we cry out for. That's what we beg God for. I think about the Apostle Paul. This poor man. He had spent his life persecuting Christians. Persecuting them. And in persecution, that means he murdered them. Can you imagine the guilt that man carried when he walked into a home of a family whose mother and father he killed and he's sitting with their children talking to them about the love of God? Can you imagine being in Ephesus when all the prostitutes would come down out of the temple and he would declare to himself, those, those things I don't want to do, those I do, and those things I want to do, I, those I don't do, a wretched man that I am, who deliver me from this body of death? <clears throat> he doesn't declare the sins he committed. But if you think the Apostle Paul walked on water, you're sorely mistaken. You think he was without sin or he was some special, amazing anointing. Every sin you struggle with, he struggled with. He didn't have a Christian fellowship. He didn't have any radio stations or, or bookstores or seminaries. or He didn't have any of it. He didn't have anyone to fellowship with. He spent most of his time in prison. You don't think depression struck that guy? And and to make matters worse, when the Lord declared him to be an apostle, every one of them rejected him as an apostle. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. I know I'm a loser. I've heard you tell me that every city I've gone to. I know I murdered people. I get it. I know I committed that sin. I know. But he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labor more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. I'm just going to keep doing what I do and the enemy is going to yell at me and he is going to accuse me, but I got the breastplate of righteousness. And what he's telling the church at Ephesus is the same one I wear. You got to put on because we can't get from city to city with the accusations of the enemy. He's a liar. And he wants to paralyze you with guilt, shame and condemnation. Romans 8, 1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans goes on to declare, who is he that condemns? A rhetorical question that means Satan. When he reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. You put on that breastplate of righteousness. You walk in the righteousness that was given to you by Jesus Christ. And I I think what a ground for discouragement it must have been for the Apostle Paul. God called him an apostle, but everyone else seemed to reject him. 
when he talked about the thorn in his side, I don't think it was blindness. I think the thorn in his side was the fact that nobody ever recognized him as an apostle. You may disagree with me on that. So what? I don't care. My opinion and a dollar will get you a cup of coffee. But I think that was tough for him. He wrote about it. It crushed him. He could, he could have easily have said at any point, what's, what's the use? I'm preaching to people who don't give a flip about me. Could you imagine Jesus on the cross? The people he's dying for are the ones that are spitting on him. He says, a servant isn't any greater than his master. As they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. But blessed are you, oh, how happy are you that when you're reviled and persecuted, for great is your reward on this earth when everyone praises you and commends you, wants to buy you nice, shiny things. No, 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 the scripture doesn't say that. The scripture says great is your reward in heaven. You're not promised squat on this earth. Suck it up, move forward and put on the breastplate. It's war. The Apostle Paul did it by keeping his eyes on the author and finisher of his faith. So can we. You know, I close with this last thought. There's a passage in the Gospels. <clears throat> it says, when you're on the way to a court of law with your adversary, Agree with your adversary before you get to the judge. So, if we're going to talk about the breastplate of righteousness, that it's not what we do, it's who he is. And we put that on by faith, knowing that even when we fail, his grace is sufficient. He doesn't see you in your sin, he sees you in, your, in his son's righteousness. You don't have to operate in the guilt and the shame and the condemnation. Dust yourself off, put on the breastplate, and move forward. Tell the enemy of your soul to be quiet. And here's how it works. When you're on your way to the judge, which we all know is God, because we think he hates us, and we feel condemned by him, and we have projected this on the Father, and when we're on our way to the judge, and our adversary's with us, and he's accusing us, and we know who the adversary is, it's a devil, and he's saying, Rob, you know what you did, and you know what you've been thinking, and you do, do you realize you did this yesterday, you did it today, and you're doing it right now? I know, I'm such a loser, he's just going to wipe me out, he doesn't want anything to do with it. You're right, he does, and I don't even know where we're going there. He's going to condemn you, he doesn't want anything, you might as well just go kill yourself, you might as well go hide in a hole. You're the biggest waste of space. You call yourself a Christian. It's amazing that his voice before sounded so pleasant. You know what? You need some me time, Rob. Just indulge in this. It'll be good. I mean, God won't care. His grace is sufficient. Just indulge it. And then you do. And then the voice changes. You loser. God hates you. Nobody ever hears these voices? Maybe it's just me. So <laughs> wonder we get any rest. And you're walking to the judge in that voice, you pathetic waste of space. You might as well go cap yourself, you loser. And you know what you do when you're walking to the judge? You turn to your adversary and you agree with him. You know what, devil? You're right. I did do that. I'm doing it right now. I did it yesterday too. You're right. I, I, everything you say is true. 
I'm not arguing with you in the least bit. I'm agreeing with you. You're right. I am a loser. But here's the point. It's not about me. My righteousness is not what I do or don't do. It's what he did. So let's go see him. And we get to the judge. And there's my defense attorney who happens to be the judge's son. And my adversary starts laying out his case, and the judge is looking at it. I see entries everywhere you're speaking of. Yes, it appears to be true. Mm-hmm. I'm having a problem reading it. And he turns to my attorney. He says, why am I having problems reading this? And my attorney, who happens to be the judge's son, says, well, as you'll notice, judge, dad, it's covered in my blood. Hmm. Yes, it is. Case closed. My son's righteousness is on your account, and you have no bearing in this case adversary be gone with you and the breastplate of righteousness is secure nothing can separate you from the love of god which is in christ jesus our lord nothing that's the breastplate of righteousness put it on walk in the strength of god observe the law not out, not out of obligation but out of adoration for his righteousness put on your account Don't walk with your nose in the air. Walk in humility. You didn't do anything. He did it all. But rejoice and thank Him for it. Use it and move forward. Amen? Amen. All right, let's close in prayer. I'll invite the worship team up. We're going to praise the God who did this for us. Lord, we thank You for this day. We thank You for Your Word. The breastplate of righteousness. We put this on by faith. We receive this salvation. We rejoice in that which you've begun, you're faithful to complete, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For with our heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And as we've come to this passage of Scripture and we understand that it's salvation by grace, there are some in this room who have never had this opportunity to receive this armor. They've heard the lie of the enemy. They've attempted to obtain righteousness by what they've done. But today they realize, much like the the pagan in the story in Luke 18, uh, they've judged the church to be self-righteous. They said the church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites. It is. It is. There's a lot of us in here. But that doesn't stop the fact that you need a Savior and you need His righteousness on your account. If you've never received the Lord... You believe in your heart. That's unto righteousness. Confess with your mouth unto salvation. If you want to receive the Lord, I'd, I'd encourage you. I, I'm going to ask us, bow your heads, keep your eyes closed. If you ever received, never received the Lord, never having received the Lord, today's a day of salvation. Jesus said, if you profess me before man, I'll profess you before my Father in heaven. It's got to be this, this move of your heart to, to do something to acknowledge this salvation. It's an act of your will. I'm going to make it real simple. The Lord honors it. If you want to receive the Lord right now unto salvation, you want His righteousness put on your account, you want to silence the voices of guilt and shame,